the National Archives podcast series, Archives Discovery Forum 2012 Keynote Talk, presented by Bill Thompson. It's a great privilege to be invited to speak to you all. Um, some of you I know. I suppose I'd start by saying the title of Head of Partnership Development in the BBC's Archive Development Group. Now, Archive Development sits in vision at the BBC under Rowley Keating, who is Director of Archive Content, and Tony Aggie on the left there, who is Controller of Archive Development. But we are not the same as Information and Archives, which is run by Sarah Hayes, who is Director of Information and Archives, and where Adam Lee is Head of Archive Development. (laughs) I generally spend the first ten minutes of any meeting telling new partners about this. They then ask me if I can get them old episodes of Blake Seven, (laughs) or if they're from a cultural institution, Bleak House, and without fail, tickets for Strictly Come Dancing. (laughs) The problem is I don't have access to any of those because that's Sarah's department, so I can just say, yes, well, we'll try. What I'm working on, what I'm trying to do within the BBC, is to deliver the maximum possible value from the BBC's archive. So not look after it, in a sense, provide an excuse for looking after it to make sure that it's delivering public value and, where possible, commercial value. And the archive is, of course, much, much bigger than people think. It's all the stuff the BBC has accumulated since 1922, when it was the British Broadcasting Company, before it became the British Broadcasting Corporation in 1927 under the Royal Charter. It's the stuff we either thought was important because we thought we might need it again, or because we didn't get round to throwing away, and it just happened to be there when we came looking for it. There's a vast amount of material in there, and any of you who had an opportunity to engage with, to explore, to be infuriated by, or to fail to find something in the BBC archive will know just how wonderful it is, what a magical mystery store it is, and about how far away from the ordered rows of videotapes and cassettes in people's imagination the actual archive is. Uh, And those of you who haven't had an opportunity to come and play with it or want to look around, uh, please ask me, because I can arrange tours of Perivale. My powers may be limited, but that I can deliver. My role is Head of Partnership Development, and development's quite key there. I'm working in partnership with as many possible other cultural institutions, including, of course, the National Archives, including many of you in this room. Because once we started thinking about what the archive was going to do or was capable of, we realised very quickly that every other public service organisation and indeed a lot of private sector organisations face the same sort of problems about bringing their collections, bringing their archives, bringing their material into the digital era as the BBC faces. And so working with them would offer enormous benefits both to the BBC and to the rest of the sector. So we forged what I hope are close working relationships with the National Archives, the British Library, the British Film Institute, Arts Council England, essentially anyone who we think we can establish a connection with. We started with some of the larger national organisations just because it's easier for the BBC as an institution to get a grip on them, but it's absolutely not an exclusive club or an exclusive society in any way. We will work with anyone because if our goals are aligned, then we think we can achieve something together. And indeed, many of these organisations already work with the BBC in other contexts. So often we're building on existing relationships and occasionally we're repairing existing relationships. Either way, we're trying to do things in a way that's slightly different to the BBC's approach to partnerships that are largely on the editorial side. An esteemed colleague of mine said the BBC in the past doesn't do partnerships with people, it does partnerships to people. And we're trying to get away from that 
because the issues that face us as we move towards increasing access through digital technologies are so big, so important, and so general that we really do have to work together. If you look at the strategies of some of the large organisations and indeed some of the small, it's increasingly around how we cope with digital. So the British Library's strategy for 2020 is explicitly to move as much of its collection online or at least on screen as possible to digitise books so they can be read and searched for and looked at to digitise their manuscripts, to digitise the newspapers. That's because they recognise that for more and more people, if something isn't findable by Google or Bing or a search engine, if it can't be seen on the screen, then it might as well not exist. That anything that can't be read or watched or listened to on a phone or a tablet or a laptop will be left out. Now, this is a problem for universities generally. I know that librarians around the country are in despair at the poor research skills of many undergraduates who feel that if you've Googled it and you haven't found it, it never existed anyway, and you should just go ahead and write up whatever happens to appear in Wikipedia. And that's a fundamental challenge. But you don't address that by saying, don't refer to Wikipedia, don't refer to the internet. You address it by ensuring that appropriate research tools and material is available at the place where the students are going to be looking for it. Because those undergraduates are going to grow into postgraduates, they're going to grow into academics. You know, eventually, somebody's going to have to start looking at the real sources, and it will be helpful if they were available, or at least the catalogues were fully available in a digital form. And the BBC's collection accumulated over the last decade is an important collection. The material the BBC has accumulated matters. It provides a social history. It provides pictorial evidence of buildings that no longer exist, of social practices that have long gone, of people who are dead. And that BBC collection, that BBC material, needs to be fully integrated in a way that it currently isn't. And the collections need to be brought together. And that need comes from the fact that more and more of us are spending more and more of our time online. You may have heard of Twitter. I believe it's quite popular with young people. I'm not, I wouldn't define myself as being an addict of Twitter because I only tweet 20 or 30 times a day, usually, on one of my accounts. And only a few times a day on the other account. And, and the fact that I'm reading Twitter all the time, that when standing at the station platform at Cambridge this morning uh, on my way down to London, I did not buy or even look at a newspaper website, but I followed Twitter, is not a sign of addiction, but a sign that um, I appreciate that community and the things they offer me. I'm no more addicted to Twitter than I am to coffee. My phone is always with me. About the only time I turn it off these days is when I'm on live radio on the World Service because it would be embarrassing for 10 million people to hear my phone ring. And even then, I, sometimes I'll just put it into flight mode so I can still read the stuff that is on it. My laptop goes with me everywhere. At the moment, I'm running this presentation from my laptop and reading from my iPad, and my phone is over there, but I know where it is. Again, I'm no, long, no more addicted to the internet than I am to coffee. But I do live in what I'd call a newly emerged liminal space between online and offline. That there isn't really any time of the day when I'm not aware of what is happening to hundreds, thousands of friends and colleagues and acquaintances and celebrities and people in the news thanks to the online media that are available to me. When there's an earthquake in Mexico, I hear about it on Twitter. When things are happening, I learn about them from my friends who post about them. And when I'm sitting talking to you all now, I'm aware of that online space. It penetrates my life. And I don't think the distinction between being in the room and partly online is one that is going to be sustainable for much longer.
I think that more and more people are going to live like that. So I want to imagine what sort of access to information about the past, to the archives, to libraries, to other sources, we're going to want in a world where most of the people are online most of the time. I accept that is not the case now. I accept there are vast numbers of people in the world who are deprived even of good sanitation and housing and do not have easy access to the internet. But I'm looking forward because it's clear there is a political imperative to get everybody online. It's clear from all the research and um, work I've done around ICT for development that access to the internet and access to computers can actually aid in other areas of development, so it is a worthwhile goal. And it's clear that being online all the time, whether it's from a smartphone or a laptop, or even the feature phone, a simpler phone of the types that are now commonly available in India and Africa and South America, changes the way people relate to each other and to the world and to sources of information. And those of us who have repositories, I think, need to be there for when they arrive. That there needs to be a digital memory bank full of digital versions of all sorts of things as a way to ensure that everybody, when they become a citizen of the digital age, has access to the past as well as to the present. And that they can navigate those resources in a way which makes sense for them, that they can tell their own stories, that they can make this thing work for them. There's another reason for doing it, which is that I actually care about the past, I care about history, I care about our memories. And there is a real danger that if we don't seize this moment, to move forward on digitization and accessibility, then nobody will bother. That those undergraduates who've grown up thinking Google is the truth will make Google the truth, will not bother to digitize the other stuff, will never have referred to it, and will construct layers of meaning on what they have extracted from today's internet on which they will build their own towers of knowledge, and the old stuff will just become a midden heap of neglected documents and neglected papers. The great cathedrals of Europe were once alive with people. They were worshipping. They were trading. They were talking to each other. It was the centre of the community. They were richly painted. They were centres of community life and fundamental to the dissemination of knowledge. Now they attract relatively few worshippers, are largely places for tourists. You pay to go into St Paul's. You pay to go into Notre Dame. I don't want the libraries and the archives filled with books and documents to go the same way as we move from the age of the codex to the age of the screen and the pixels. I don't want us to disregard the stuff that is currently in books and documents and on tape as we move to an age where electrons do the heavy lifting of ideas instead of books. But if we're going to make that happen, then we need to act. We can accept that printed books and printed documents may, in five or ten years' time, be a sort of tertiary storage after the mind and the hard drive. It's the same sort of transition that television and radio are making at the moment, and indeed newspapers are making at the moment. Instead of being the first draft of history, newspapers are now the second draft of history, after Twitter and the blogosphere and Facebook have finished with their interpretations of the facts. And that's been a very difficult transition for newspapers to make. I doubt many of them will survive it. I doubt many of them will be printed newspapers in a few years' time, though there will be a need for the role. The Independence experiment with being a newspaper and not just a newspaper under the editorship of Simon Kellner was brave and a little bit too early, but it's clear that's the direction that The Guardian is going and that others will have to go as well. So we live now, many of us, me, maybe some of you, certainly many of my friends and colleagues, in this hybrid world where physical experience and analogue culture and digital technologies coexist uneasily. We're living through a transition 
that I think is more important than the move to movable type 800 years ago in Korea, as we see here, 500 years ago in Europe, sorry, more, uh, 1,000 years ago in Korea. I think it might be as significant in its way as the development of literacy was 5,000 years ago. The way we've got something here is the equivalent of inventing the alphabet. It's going to require changes to the way our brains operate. It's going to require changes to the way we think about the world that are just as significant as the emergence of literacy. It's clear that teaching someone to read is a way of doing brain surgery on them without a scalpel, that you restructure people's brains in order to allow them to do the processing necessary to read fluently. Or teaching someone to cope in a multi-screen world where all of this digital information is available to them on demand and where many of their relationships are mediated through the screen or through headphones is going to require similar shifts in the way we construct reality and the way we organise our brains. It will inevitably have a massive impact on what we mean by culture, on how we organise ourselves, on how we understand our place in the world and at the forms of artistic and literary practice and the dissemination of those works. Everything is up for grabs. Within the BBC, we have a history, I'd say a proud history, of informing, entertaining and communicating. The BBC's done one or two things that have been quite successful that you may have heard of, like radio and television. And I'm part of a small, some would say deeply disturbed, group of people who are looking at what might be the next thing, about how it goes after now, about what the BBC needs to turn itself into in order to be as significant a mediator of culture and a connection to the past as it was in the golden age of television, which some people on the sixth floor below me in Television Centre would say is now, of course, and will be tomorrow and the day after, or the golden age of radio, which most people think is tomorrow, or maybe <coughs> yesterday. It's certainly how we can do something which compares to radio and television in its impact. Now, that's a very um, big aspiration. And turning it, in, turning it into a reality in an organisation like the BBC is something of a challenge, as many of you will expect. Those of you who have worked with the BBC will know that the BBC as a business, as a corporation, is dedicated to ensuring that you can't do anything. But if you try very, very hard, they might let you make television and radio programmes. However, the BBC is also an organisation in which nothing is permitted, but once it's happened once, it is compulsory. <laughs> so our strategy within archive development has been to try things out and fail in interesting ways, to test the boundaries of what's possible, and when we establish a small victory, to say it always has to be that way from now, and to build on it. It's taken a lot of effort, and it's relied fundamentally on the partnerships that we have established. It has been working with other organisations who share the same problems, who share the same vision of how digital technologies transform our engagement with culture, that we've managed to make progress. Of course, when we started, everybody just wanted clips from me for their exhibitions. Uh, this is uh, the science fiction exhibition that was at the British Library last year. And I was very pleased that I managed to provide five minutes of the Peter Cushing 1984 adaptation to be shown on the little screen. Those are three displays. Five minutes of BBC work. Now, the problem with that is, whilst it was great to do, it probably cost, in terms of staff time, lawyer time, administrative time, several thousand pounds. You know, 
if we had a counter-up for the meetings that we had about trying to liberate that stuff from the BBC's archive, it would have been frightening. Okay? Um, it's just not sustainable to do things in that way. That you can't just look at the BBC's material, most of which it doesn't have rights to anyway, and say, oh, well, let's make this available. And the other thing is, by and large, watching old television is the least interesting thing you can do with it. That there's so much more that becomes possible with the material. But in order for that to happen, you need to have a place to put it. You need to have an environment, a context within which it fits, that takes advantage of the capabilities of these digital technologies. And that is a challenge. So we're working with many other institutions to define and develop something we call the digital public space. The digital public space is a large-scale initiative, lots of people involved with it. It is not a BBC project, it is a cultural sector project that also involves private sector partners. We're trying to find the best way to provide the widest possible access to the largest range of digitised material that is curated or created by the public sector. So how do we take material that exists in digital form, from old television programmes to scanned text to 3D models of objects in museums, and make it available to the wider public and all the other communities that go along with that, like the research community, in a way that supports the aspirations of so many different organisations with many different missions and goals, many different constraints some of whom have to think much more carefully than the BBC does about revenue generation, for example. Whilst the BBC has BBC Worldwide out there trying to make money out of the stuff the BBC creates, the licence fee gives us a freedom to think on, the, in a, in, on a much bigger scale because we don't have to worry about where the money is coming from this year. And we know that many institutions do have to worry about where the money is coming from and that any initiatives that we're involved with have to be not only sensitive to that, but to have an understanding of that baked into it. And that's just one of the many aspects where other people know better than the BBC what could or should be done as we think about the digital public space, and so the BBC wouldn't dream of leading in that area. So because it concerns digitised data, at the heart this is about how do you get access to digitised assets of some sort, the technical aspects of the digital public space are about standards for digitising and storing material like books or videotapes or films or anything else, about the differences between digitisation and digital preservation, about how having a digitised copy of a film doesn't mean you throw the 35 mil away, uh, as my friends in the BFI have told me and hit me over the head with film cans to make sure I really understand this one. Whereas within the BBC, if you digitise a digibeta tape, you can then responsibly dispose of the, um, the stuff because you've got all the bits of it. There isn't anything there on it. We want to learn how to deal properly with born digital assets, documents and video. And of course, crucially, how do you add the appropriate catalogue information, metadata, you know, the mission of all of you? How do you make this stuff findable once it is digitisable? How do you let people know it's there? How do you make sure the collections work together? So on top of storage and cataloging systems, you need to build search tools and user interfaces that will give people access to the data or, where they have permission, the underlying digital material. And of course, separating out the metadata from the assets, the essence, as they call it inside uh, the BBC's Digital Media Initiative, really helps. Because you can allow people to safeguard the essence and to be as precious about it as they want, while at the same time, like Europeana, encouraging people to be as open as possible with their catalogue data. And that then allows you at least to understand what is there 
and ask for it. And the sorts of things you can ask for are effectively unlimited. You can ask, obviously, for film, and you can ask for scans or photographs of objects. You can ask for details of flowers. We're working closely with Q. You can ask for recordings of performances, whether they were live or made on film or video. You can digitise anything, manuscripts and photographs and magazines, and even, as the British Library will tell you, knitting patterns. The British Library has an enormous collection of knitting patterns from the 1930s. Uh, Fran Alexander there organised an exhibition and a knitting event from them just a couple of weeks ago, which was a resounding success and demonstrates that archives really do have everything in them. You can do all of this. You can bring in people's collections, however large or small they may be, from every museum in the country, every collection in the world, even people's own personal archives. The work that's happening around the World War I centenary, where people are being encouraged to bring in their memorabilia and have them scanned and recorded at um, real-world events, has been enormously successful. And once it's digitised and once it's catalogued, you find a place to put it. It's a digital play den. So it's not a play pen it doesn't have walls it's an open space but it's a digital play den where this material can be used in ways that we can't imagine it can be used for all sorts of things now that is a very good aspiration to have and it's easy to explain the problem is you explain it to anyone and they go ah but and then they come up with this list of the things you need to sort out first and it's a very long and intimidating list and it worries a lot of people because we see again and again people asserting intellectual property rights or saying the only way they'll make money out of stuff is if they assert those rights or the rights holders won't have it or the rights holders are afraid or the... you get the picture and I'm sure all of you have encountered that how do you sort out digital identity now it might not seem clear why sorting out digital identity matters if you're concerned with digitizing an archive but unless you know who people are unless they can assert their status, you won't know what to give them, or, given the interaction with the rights issues, what you're allowed to give them. How does someone let you know that they are definitely a student on an approved course of education so that you can allow them all the educational exemptions that have been carved out of copyright? How does someone let you know they're working for an independent producer under commission to the BBC so you can give them access to all that stuff that would otherwise be unavailable and even allow them to take copies of it in high definitions so they can make their own versions? How do you know that? Now, at the moment, we rely on a very rich, complex and incompatible set of assertions of identity, often to do with being in a particular physical location at a physical time. Some very large organisations, Facebook, Google are trying to claim identity for themselves. And if the cultural sector in the UK said to Facebook, please can we just use our Facebook IDs for everything, then Mark Zuckerberg would be a very, very happy man. But they will never do all the things that they have to do. Let's take a small example, which, which came out in conversations with the British Library. We were talking in BBC terms about how great it would be if everybody could have a you know, universal identifier of some sort, and then it would you know, record their journey through the archive and allow them to share that with their friends. And you know, somebody at the VL said, well, yes, that would just be a complete disaster. Let's just imagine that I'm looking through the stacks at the BL and I open a document and I discover in it a hitherto unknown poem by T.S. Eliot. This is fantastic. The last thing I want on my Facebook timeline is Bill has just read a hitherto unknown poem by T.S. Eliot because that's really not going to help when I want to publish about it. But, conversely... I do want it known 
exactly when and in what context I came across that poem. I want to be able to assert it so that if, after I publish, someone says, oh, I read that poem months ago, I can actually prove fairly definitively that they didn't. There's a whole load of stuff I might want to look at and not share with you all now, and I might want to share with my children in 50 years' time after I'm dead. How do I build an identity framework that supports that sort of digital locker? So you take any one of these questions and instantly it explodes into a whole load of issues where technology, the interests and needs of the archives, libraries and collections, and broader issues of social policy intersect. That's why it's so fascinating. It's also why it's so frightening. We've taken what I think is a reasonably pragmatic approach to all of these problems and decided to ignore them. What we did instead was we said, OK, let's imagine in a sort of science fiction way a world in which we figured all of this out because we know we're bright people, we know we can do this. Let's just suppose it was sorted. What sort of things would we do? How would people use a digital public space that is the most that we could imagine? So it's a bit like a utopian fantasy. People might want to use information here. They'll want to consume some stuff. They will still want to watch stuff. People like watching and being engaged with ongoing narratives. They'll want to make connections with different people in different ways, but they want to do that in a way that's under their control. They'll want to curate their own material, their own work. Either things they've made from other people's work, purely creative, and I don't know if any of you saw the Bruce Springsteen keynote from South by Southwest. I thoroughly recommend it, particularly for the bit where he talks about how he stole his bass lines from other people that music builds on other music, and to believe that it doesn't, believe that a musician just comes up with something de novo, is a convenient fiction put about by lawyers. So in this world, you have access to that work, all of it, and you can make new things out of it, and you can bring in your own stuff as well. You can find the things that are valuable to you. And everybody will have a different set of engagements with the digitized cultural assets. And there will be significant overlap between those digitized assets and physical objects. The physical objects don't go away. I'm still going to have that box of old student newspapers that I wrote for in the 1980s yeah, in my attic. But what's nice now is I can see the names of some of the people who were my colleagues on Stock Press in those days, Google them and make connections with them again. So again, this idea of the liminal space, the hybrid world where it all fits together becomes important. And a big part of the digital public space is figuring out how it works with the existing public space. So that was our dream within archive development. And what we're doing now is actually building some stuff to demonstrate what is or isn't possible. The BBC's work with the British University's Film and Video Council, which is the GISC funded, uh, sorry, um, which is funded by GISC, and the Strategic Content Alliance, also funded by GISC, to deliver this project. It's called Chronicle. And we've digitised 300 hours of BBC news footage from Northern Ireland from the 60s and 70s. We've put it up onto a server. In fact, it's sitting on the Bob server, anyone who uses the BUFC service, and made it available to a group of academics who can use it for teaching material and also for their own research purposes. Now, that's fine, good as far as it goes. Crucially, there are tools within there to allow them to tag and catalogue the material they find and we have a mechanism for feeding that back into the BBC's own catalogue. So this is our, an experiment in crowdsourcing rich metadata from an engaged student population. And it tries out just one of those things. We know who they are because they've all got university logins. We know how the material is being used, so it's low risk for the BBC. We've chosen what is actually very sensitive material to take it as far as we possibly can. 
if we can have footage from the Troubles, then we probably can have footage from most anything in this sort of environment. And we've learned an enormous amount about this. For example, we've learned that the current BBC cataloguing system does not cope very well with academic use. Now, I suspect there's nobody in this room who's surprised by that, or indeed who didn't know it already. But it's useful that the BBC now knows it, and therefore things have to be done slightly differently. Um, the example that um, my, my colleague April Card came up with is that if you search this archive for Bloody Sunday, you find next to nothing, because on the day, that's not what it was called. Okay, it's obvious. It's obvious when you think about it, but people had not been thinking about it. And this sort of quite low-intensity experiment allows us to lock down these issues and move forward. We built a prototype digital public space with help from people in this very room, where we took chunks of data from a number of partners, National Archives, British Library, National Library of Scotland, and built a data aggregator just to see whether we could develop an overarching data model which would point to the assets wherever they happen to be available, wherever they happen to be stored, and also allow us to build a variety of user interfaces on top of it. And we've then taken a big step forward by working with Arts Council England to build a six-month digital arts service. Now, this is a project called The Space. It's at thespace.org. It will be launching on May the 1st. Otherwise, people will be leaving. And it's a close participation with Arts Council England to build a prototype digital arts service. It's a run for six months. It's an Arts Council England offer, and the BBC is building the technology. We're doing the back end. And we're also mentoring over 50 arts organisations as they build material to go on the space. And one of the projects we're doing is working with the John Peel Archive to begin the process of digitising his record collection. Not the music, the sleeves, his notes, his index cards, the actual interesting stuff that he wrote about all of this, and give people an, the ability to explore it using his categories and categorisation. It's a fantastic project. The space looks like an arts offer, and it is. We hope that over the summer there will be an enormous amount of engaging work on there. We're going to be live streaming the Scissor Sisters concert from um, the um, River Thames, from the um, um, River of Music. We're going to be, you'll like this, live streaming the central act of Stockhausen's helicopter quartet in Birmingham, the one where the four musicians get into helicopters and fly around. <sighs> I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of other stuff. It will be engaging art. But crucially, we are building underneath it a platform where there's a single metadata schema for all of this work that will allow navigation through it that enforces standards for digital delivery of files into our ingest system. What we're essentially doing, but don't tell them, is training all of these arts organisations how to be good citizens in the digital public space. And we've done it by giving them money and commissioning art from them and saying, oh, by the way, could you just fill in this form with all this nice metadata and could you just follow these standards for video? And they're all doing it because they're used to getting money from Arts Council England and doing what they're asked. And the ask now is one which should make every archivist, librarian and metadata manager weep with joy. <laughs> and once they've done it, next time it will be much easier to get them to do this. They will understand why they did it and why it mattered. And we can use this to build on other things. The other thing we want to build on and build towards is, of course, 2014. It's the centenary of the outbreak of World War I. It's a key moment in British history. 
It's also the point at which we believe many cultural institutions will be in a position to work together around a fully digital offering, to link together the various collections. And we're talking, we're in conversation around the BBC's activities or planned activities in this area, but we're also been invited along to conversations with the Imperial War Museum and with JISC and with many others to ensure the BBC plays its proper role in this, what we think will be an enormous event. It will be, you know, commemoration. For the BBC, it's the start of a five-year project, since the BBC would follow this through to 2019. For many museums and galleries, it's an opportunity to reach out to the public in new ways. And for me, in terms of partnership development in the BBC Archive, it's a chance to take some of the principles of the digital public space that have been embedded in our thinking so far and ensure they become more widely appreciated, understood. That they form the basis for allowing the different archives to work together and so that we can make these things happen. Because if we can link all of it together, then the possibility for engagement is enormous. And it could range from you know, the entertainingly sort of trivial, like wouldn't it be interesting to get a, an alert on your mobile phone if um, it's 100 years to the day since a bomb fell in your locality, to the much more significant having audio memorials associated with war memorials, so you can actually find out some information on your smartphone as you stand in front of a war memorial about all the people who are named there. So there's an enormous amount that can be done. Doing it means thinking about the assets, it means thinking about how they're delivered, and it means thinking about the technical infrastructure needed, needed to do that. Now, in a non-digital world, the assets were the objects in collections or the television programmes or radio programmes. The delivery was through broadcasting, if you're a broadcaster like the BBC, or having curators create exhibitions and make material available to people or allowing research access. And buildings or television channels were the way in which you made the infrastructure available, made it possible. The digital world obviously allows a lot more to happen. That's the point at which you begin to face the question, is it actually worth doing? As in, is the experience of seeing something on a screen as good as the experience of standing in front of it? Is the experience of reading a book or a manuscript on a screen as good as actually having the physical book or the physical manuscript in your hand? Now, my answer to that is probably not, but it might be good enough. And it can be made good enough. And the affordances of digital allow you to add to the experience in ways that will definitely <coughs> be better in most contexts. Within television, there's this term, the drive to live. In a world of PVRs and Sky Plus and TiVo and all that sort of stuff, how do you actually get people to sit down at a particular time all together to watch the telly? And we see in the battle that's coming on Saturday between The Voice and Britain's Got Talent how important event television has become in the planning and scheduling of the broadcasters. Well, there's also a drive to real. As in, there needs to be a recognition in all our conversations about digitised assets, about getting people the ability to read or see or view stuff online, that the real doesn't go away, that the real still matters. And my point at the very start about the liminal world within which I exist, about this hybrid existence that I have at the moment, is that the real matters to me too. The reason I'm standing here in front of you is because the experience of being in this room and talking to you all and having coffee afterwards is incredibly important in shaping my understanding. That if I was a disembodied face on a screen looking at you all via a Skype connection, you might be hearing my words, but you wouldn't be experiencing them in the same way. 
That doesn't mean watching a recording of this might not have some value or might be useful in a different context, but right here and right now, it is important that we are all physically co-present. And there are many occasions on which it is important that you are present with the object or the book or the thing that you are interested in or trying to find out about or trying to understand. And the digital public space absolutely overlaps and exists in the physical public space. And one of the big questions is how to make sure that happens and to make sure that the proponents of digitising everything and then throwing it away don't ever triumph. Because it's not at all guaranteed that we'll get a digital public space. We might just get a digital space. We might get one that is more dominated by the interests of the market. We could leave a lot of this to Facebook or Google. I hear that at one point Larry Page, who's one of the owners of Google, made an offer to buy the BBC's archive. Not with Google's money, with his own money. Just to sort it all out. And I'm sure he would have sorted something out. But we should remember that those who have a commercial motivation don't necessarily do the right thing. There's a well-known um, uh, television station, the Community Channel. I don't know if you know the Community Channel. It's broadcast on Freeview. Um, they have a catch-up service which is run via YouTube. So if you don't watch um, Community Channel on television, you can watch it on YouTube, which is great. And YouTube is a very good free service. And Community Channel, a few months ago, did a very caring and sensitive documentary about sex lives and sexuality of people with disabilities. And it was, you know, it was really well done, really sort of you know, responsible, really good journalism. And this is where it is on YouTube, along with the advert for best Russian ladies. And that's inevitable. And in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that, because that advert will have got some clicks and somebody will make some money and that will pay for YouTube servers. And that means YouTube can offer the service for free. Because if you're not paying for something, then you're not the customer, you are the thing being sold. In this case, the community channel is the thing being sold by YouTube. Investing public funding is really important because it allows us to avoid that. The public digital public space needs to be public service. It needs to be fair, open for all to use, without risk or restriction or charge or explanation. As the BBC, we're going to act in good faith and be generous within the limits that the BBC has. We are going to be open about the things we're doing that are trials and experiments that may or may not work or go anywhere. And we're going to closely tie what we do to the core of the BBC's public purposes. And that core actually goes back to the 1926 Charter. This is the Charter from George V. And it says that we'll be a public corporation acting as trustees for the national interest. And I think that is the thing that is at the core of the BBC's engagement now with all the other trustees of the national interest. We want to make sure that is there and works for all of us. Partnerships are vital to the BBC in every aspect of operation, but nowhere more so than when it comes to imagining what the digital public space will look like, to how people will get access to all the treasures that all of us in this room look after and make available to people how to make sure that is done in the national interest, in the public interest, that it is public value that drives us. And whilst commercial considerations have to be taken into account, they cannot be allowed to dominate. They have to be one factor among others. We can make an enormous amount of the material that is already available digitally. We can digitise more. And as the digital public space becomes, more a becomes a reality, we can make it more widely available to everyone. Doing that is going to require a lot of work. 
but I hope I've managed to convince you now that it is worth striving for, that it is something we should be aiming for. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 21st of March 2012 as part of the Archives Discovery Forum 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.